it's your company. You have to take ownership for it. When hiring a business coach or a lawyer or an accountant, to me, I feel like people need to just get over themselves, stop being so intimidated and treat them like a high paid employee. They're under you, right? You're not under them. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Well, I feel like I've been gone from the pod for a little bit. The last couple of weeks, we were running the biography episodes. Incredible feedback and emails from you guys on that. And in fact, we might have to do some follow-ups because there's a lot of questions about the origin stories, a lot of comments about uh, how ridiculous it was that Ian was trying to transport ferrets across the country and so on. I'm so glad we were able to do that and share it with you guys. It was, it was fun to do. And it's honestly, it's great to be back on the pod. Today's episode, we are going to talk about how you can strategically start a services business. And these are right in front of us. So many of us go in to start marketing services, but there's also traditional services business. So if you're struggling to get something off the ground, I think this episode could be inspiring to you. And if you've got something going, also add a little texture to the conversation. But can I take a moment to reflect about where I've been? Last week was, of course... DCBKK. This is our eighth year doing this event with over 300 entrepreneurs. I got to give a shout out to our platinum sponsors. Smash Digital, the SEO firm with skin in the game. These guys are doing free video audits for TMBA listeners. Take advantage of it. Uh, I got a lot of positive feedback about how useful those even short personalized videos have been for the listeners. Also, Revision Legal. Eric, one of the founders of Revision Legal has been on this show. Again, a case study in how professional services are starting to serve listeners of this pod and turn that into a meaningful business. And speaking of meaningful businesses, Empire Flippers, online marketplace for buying and selling businesses, just crossed the $100 million threshold. Those guys were on this pod before they were the Empire Flippers. In fact, I was in a mastermind with them when I think we were debating that brand name. And wow, if you don't think your life can change fast... Take a look at these sponsors. Each and every one of them is a case study and how you can grow an extraordinary life-changing business. And that's what I want to talk about at the top of the show here. These events, there's something else. And it's not just DCBKK. You can get this experience in other places. And one of the insights that I walked away with, these events that are in this five-star hotel, you're in there for like five plus days. I mean, I checked in on a Monday. I checked out on a Wednesday. So I'm in this hotel for like nine nights or whatever, and it is just like a blur of ideas, of information, of passion, of just amazing people running around, bouncing off of each other. It has this timelessness quality to it. You know, I I emerged in sort of a daze with just a laundry list of ways I can improve my business, new people to follow up with, to spend time with. It's extraordinary. And... One of the insights I had is so often as the quote, location independent entrepreneurs, we martyr ourselves. We martyr our strategic position in the world 
for a variety of reasons. We sacrifice being in a strategic location in order to be with a spouse. We do it in order to be in a location that we think is cool. We do it in order to pursue a hobby that is outside of our business. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about building a quote location independent business or owning a business of any substantial size that you can automate yourself out of. But here's the catch. One of the things about being at this event, you know, reinforced for me is the enormous value of finding your tribe. That is the glow that people walk out of these events with is, man, I found my people. You know, all year long I sit in X hamlet, town, city, whatever doing my own thing, swimming upstream, and all of a sudden, bam, I found my people. And everybody here speaks my language. My message to you out there in TMBA listener land is that doesn't have to be just one event. I mean, one of the things that uh, in our particular community, the DC, it happens is people keep coming back to these events and reinforcing those relationships. And you know, you hit the third, fourth, fifth, sixth event, and all of a sudden you're around your family, not just your people. And these are people that you know well, people you collaborate with. And one of the things I'd like to ask those of you who maybe feel a little bit isolated in the world is, why aren't you investing more in finding your tribe? And I think that has a lot to do with location. You know, we say location independent isn't location arbitrary. If you're building a location independent business, why not use that flexibility to go someplace where you can be around people that can be your peers and your mentors? Even if it's just for a few months, the thing is, is like events like DCBKK are great, but you can't get this stuff done in a week. So you got to follow up with either, you know, a mastermind, a regular phone call, going to future events to see those same people. But you can really supercharge this stuff if you can find ways to be around those people for a longer term, whether even if that's a medium term. And what I'm seeing a lot is people say, well, you know, I'm working on the internet. And I'm having a tough time, but I'm, you know, doing my thing. I really value it. You know, my partner or ex-interest is like in this location because they got a job there. Take a job, like say you're, uh, you drive an ambulance or something and you got a good job in like a good county that pays a good pension or whatever. And so, you know, that person is stuck in that city quote. And then the other person is an internet entrepreneur quote, location independent. Well, one of the challenges that I sort of thought about this weekend was, well, who's really more location independent? The internet entrepreneur is trying to do something all on their own with no support network, trying to you know, pull it together with emails and phone calls. And meanwhile, there's ambulance drivers in every major city in the world. Yes, we do run location independent businesses. That's true. But what is the value to your internet business if you're around people that you can model, that you can learn from, that you can get mentorship from, that you can do business with, on a daily basis. The thought I'd like to leave you with today is that in the internet business space where things are so very niche and specialized and specialized knowledge is really critical to having success, maybe it's even more important where you live if you run a quote, location independent business. All right, that's that. Ian and I are going to be back on the pod shortly with some full-on reflections and predictions about the future of this community. So let's get moving on to today's conversation. There's been a flood of positive interest and emails about a recent episode I did regarding sweaty startups, quote, sweaty startups with Nick Huber. We talked about businesses that Nick loves 
and that he hates. And many of us are seeing that we can use our internet business skills to compete and win in more traditional physical services niches. So when an email came in from a listener who had not only set up but sold such a business, I was intrigued. And then when I learned he was actually in Chiang Mai, where I'm currently hanging out, finding my tribe, number one, but also I got a tribe of cyclers and golfers up here that are pretty cool to hang out with too. We decided that meeting up and discussing his recent exit would be a no-brainer. So I'm going to let Eric introduce himself, but just a little bit of context. By the time Eric sold his Canada-based roofing company last year, depending on the season, you know, roofing being that kind of work, he was employing between 25 and 50 people bringing in just over $6 million Canadian dollars, and he reports his net profit margin to be anywhere between 35 to 4%. His story is a classic entrepreneurial story full of turning points, insights, and failures, as you'll hear. So let's get to it. My name is Eric Gilbert-Williams. Right now, I'm traveling and writing my book and helping out uh, other companies. I just finished exiting my last business last year in uh, March of 2018. Now that I have my time free, I get to figure out, you know, what to do next. You know, you sell a company, you sell your identity, and now I get to figure out who I am. Did you feel like that, that you sold your identity? Oh, absolutely. You know, I I used entrepreneurship as a vehicle to fix myself, to redeem, you know, some of the mistakes in my past, right? And so I latched on to entrepreneurship and it became like my savior almost. So when I sold my savior, right? It's like, okay, well, what's left now? Now I got to face all this shit from the past that I was running from. So I dropped out of high school. You know, I failed math a bunch of times and, and got into a lot of trouble. What kind of trouble? Well, I got arrested for, well, see, back in the day, now, right now, a bunch of my friends are in the cannabis business and they're doing really well and the government loves them. The government didn't love me back then when I had my <laughs> cannabis business. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a drug dealer. I was a drug dealer. I got arrested for it. I got charged for it. Wow. Um, I got charged for trafficking, possession of proceed. And then because I'm such a smart guy, I got charged for breach of probation as well. And that was the reality I had to face when I was 17 after I left home and lived in a drug house in a, in a small basement. Um, and that's where I, I lived and stayed for, for a while. How did you feel about that arrest? Like, or did, you mentioned your identity. Did it change the way you thought about yourself? At that point, I was already running from my identity, right? When I was quite little, I grew up in a very good home, you know, loving mother, all that. You know, my parents split up and whatever. There's some, you know, always, you know, childhood emotional dramas that happen with that. But I was a very shy kid. I got beat up a lot. I got picked on. I wasn't really good at school. I couldn't focus. And, you know, I just felt stuck. Right? I hid from the issues I had when I was a kid in drugs. I was already running from my identity when I was in that situation. And you know, getting arrested and you know, people did die and people did get hurt. And that led me to question the identity that I had run to. Ultimately, another guy in, in business recruited me into a sales organization. And um, he showed me that there's a different type of identity that exists that doesn't involve bullying or drugs. It involves entrepreneurship, embracing passion as a lifeblood and living every day, creating those dreams that have been you know, brewing inside the brain and seeing them take real shape. And to me, that's what entrepreneurship is really about. So when I met him, I decided to develop a new identity, which led to a few big failures but ultimately led to construction. 
What age was it that you stumbled upon construction? I was roofing as a drug dealer after getting arrested and losing my revenue from it. I've heard that roofers often, they like drink beer while they're on the job. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was crazy back then, you know. <laughs> and even, even still to this day, the average roofing company is not wearing a safety harness and, you know, dangling up three stories up on a slippery slope with no insurance to back them. Eric, I got to do like a real-time buzz in, and I hope you don't mind this, but I got to describe you to the audience a little bit. But we bumped into each other in a co-working space in Asia where everybody here is working on websites and stuff. You're 34 years old good-looking, clean-cut guy. We talk tech right off the top. And the last thing I'd think that you were was a roofer. You know, I had a guest a few weeks ago, Nick Huber, who suggested that there's a shortage of services like this and that there's an enormous opportunity for people to enter into the marketplace. You think, you know, I'm an internet person that oh, like general contracting, that's sorted, like that's done, like there's no more opportunity there. But Nick suggested that there's more than ever. What's your perspective on that? You know, everyone's got their own thing. Everyone has their own thing that gets them excited. And for me, running from my identity and trying to find out who I am, when I discovered roofing, when I discovered absolute freedom on a roof and the adrenaline rush that comes with it and the sweat of hard work and the sun giving me a suntan, you know, scorching my back and celebrating with a beer afterwards with cash in hand from an older man who takes me in like a father, that really did it for me. When I started to look at it as a business, I started to see that no one wanted to do this work. And I consider myself to be a relatively average level of intelligence with random spurts of inspiration and a relatively average dude who really, or, or woman who really focuses themselves on the construction business, I feel can really do some good work because people avoid it. They don't want to do it. And the people that are in it often are there because they don't really want to be right. It's just something that they ended up doing. Like a lot of the people that I hired, you know, sadly were were either addicted to drugs or being chased by the government or didn't pay their taxes for several years or just got out of jail. You know, I wasn't a genius in in the work that I did. I just did the work, right? Show up, do the grind, put your nose down and get it done, right? Every day relentlessly. And with that kind of effort, you know, I feel like in construction, you can get a lot further, a lot faster than by inventing a quicker way to get to the moon, right? Or, Or Mars, I should say. You said you grew up on the East Coast of Canada. Which city? Kitchener, Ontario. And you moved to Calgary in what year? 2006 in a rusty old van. Okay. You drove across Canada, which must have been super entertaining. Yeah, it was great. I had just finished failing my third business at that point. It was a fun business. It did great on a PR and marketing side and operations side, but I hadn't figured out how to count yet, basically. In 2006, when I moved to Calgary, I used up $2,000 of the last $4,000 on my last line of credit in order to buy that van, a rusty old nail gun. And I convinced one of my old roofing buddies to join me on an adventure. It was the end of November in 2006. And when we arrived in Calgary, it was, I don't know, minus 35 plus wind chill, cars all over the ditch and snow up to your knees or whatever it was. You know, that's the condition that we drove into to do some roofing, right? <laughs> It was a horrible idea, like just, but as horrible as it was on the outside, you know, I feel like Michael Gerber's e-myth entrepreneurial seizure, when it strikes, 
you know, logic just goes out the window. What's an entrepreneurial seizure? It's like when you when you wake up and, and you're tired of your boss yelling at you or you get this sudden inspiration of, I can do that better. Or, you know, you can't go to sleep because you have this great idea and it just overtakes all logic. It's this yeah. moment you wake up and know you're going in business. And that's the moment that led you to snow in November in Calgary with a long winter ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. My, my stepdad got me some new winter tires as a gift. Very appropriate. <laughs> uh, my mother ended up buying me some winter clothes because I was stupid. And when I arrived, no one wanted to be on the roof anymore. But the demands of boom time in Alberta required roofers to be on roofs. And I was hungry, man. So we did some roofing. It's a different way of life, right? Yeah. The oil freezes in your air compressor. The lunch that you brought with you turns to ice. No one's working anymore. So you're usually by yourself. There's no daylight. If we show up at 8.30 in the morning, then daylight will be starting and it goes down at 4.30, right? So the only way to keep working is to put a headlamp on your, on your forehead and just keep working in the dark. That's the only way you can get the right hours in. When you were doing this, did you think, hey, I'm going to make some money roofing or did you think I'm an entrepreneur? A little bit of both. I was heavily in debt by the time I decided to do the roofing business and I needed- What kind of heavy are we talking? Well, heavy for an, uh, a 20, what was it, 21 year old, I think it was. So when I was 21, I had uh, three lines of credit. There was 33,000, about $33,000 if I remember correctly in total available credit. I had reached about 32,000 at one point. And in your mind, were you like, I owe somebody 32,000 or were you like, I'm going to run and I'm going to run from this stuff? Well, I, I knew I had to pay it. But I had no idea how. So the first was the sales, and then I got into another company, and then I did event production in Toronto for two years. By the time the event production was done, I was at that like 32,000 out of the 33 max. So I was lost, right? I was so embarrassed by having lost that much money and having failed. You know, as long as there's lessons learned, it's never a failure, of course. And I did know that at the time. But from a financial perspective, it was a failure. That's crushing. Right? It was crushing. You know, the idea of withdrawing from society and paying it off a bit was great. A friend of mine ran a janitorial company, so I became a janitor for him on nighttime shifts. So I would go and clean. And in Kitchener, there's one particular bar. And if you've ever been to Kitchener and, or did university in Waterloo, you know what bar I'm talking about. There's only one bar that's that dirty, that <laughs> filthy, that disgusting. And I needed anything I could to pay back some of those loans. I had done roofing before then, but in that particular moment, I had quit roofing for the third time, I think, to go do this event business. So I kind of burned a few bridges. I couldn't just really go back that fast. So I did, I did the janitor work and it was quiet. It was nighttime. No one was awake. I got to, you know, read a lot of books and discover, you know, waking meditation, you know, Dan Millman's book, Peaceful Warrior really kicked in for me. Right. And you find this Zen state where, you know, you got to get over yourself, right? Failure happens and it's not the end of the world, right? It took a while to get through that. And you know, everyone's got their own journey, but that was mine. So once I decided to shake it off and, and, you know, come back to the world, I went back to roofing, something I knew, but with an entrepreneurial mindset. And it turned out that roofing could provide a lot of thrill and fun as well as some good money and a real business that I could build on. Can you remember a story when you were out in Calgary and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm on to something here. And this is a little bit egotistical, but lay it on me. <laughs> it, it, it was the time where my income surpassed my mom and my dad's together. 
right? And as soon as my income was more than theirs combined, and at that time I was like 25 or 26 or something like that, I thought, you know what? There's, there's something here. This is interesting. I make my own schedule, which includes about half an hour of free time a week. It's amazing, and, you know, but I do get to make it. <laughs> so I make my own schedule. You know, uh, I'm getting respect. I'm learning a skill. I'm young. I paid off my debts, got some tools, took a vacation, and my income is bigger than my parents combined. And that was, that was the moment when you know, it became real. And how did you handle that? Because now all of a sudden you're making money and you have to manage people who a lot of them, I'm assuming, are older than you. Did they respect you as the boss? No, oh, no. They either quit or got fired. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because that's the reality. Were you like confident enough just to like, I'm the boss? Did you fully identify with that? Or did you feel like a little bit like, oh no, like I am pretty young here and I am handling a lot of money and responsibility? Yeah, no, I, I, my self-confidence was a coin toss every morning. What I didn't realize, though, is that I was kicking ass everywhere I was going. And it's only in hindsight that I can see back that every day was more and more good work. And self-confidence is a bitch that way. You don't even realize how, you know, a lot of people don't even realize how good of a person they are or how much good they're doing in the world. All they see is, you know, self-criticism. You know, I was doing good work and paying people on time and building a good reputation, but all I saw was the mistakes. Today's pod is sponsored by SmashDigital.com, which offers fully managed SEO services as well as free mini audits for TMBA pod listeners. Of course, not every entrepreneur or company can benefit from getting Smash Digital on board or getting SEO services in general. So I asked the founder, Travis Jamison, what sort of businesses tend to benefit the most? Companies that are established and have a quality site. So people whose sites have good content already, if they've been somewhat SEO optimized, if they're modern, people who have businesses versus hacks, businesses do well. We have a company in the financial services space. They have raised tens of millions of dollars and they're valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. And their entire business is built on SEO. And it wasn't even good at first. So if you've got a good thing going and want to make it better, rank higher in Google, check out the team over at smashdigital.com. Send them an email. Let them know the TMBA sent you. How many years in the roofing business did it take you to start making six figures a year? That's a good question. I would say probably a year and a half. A year and a half. That's yeah. fast. Yeah, it was pretty That's cool. way faster than a lot of internet businesses. Well, it's, and it's weird, right? How does that work? It's just the way that that business works. And, you know, you can have two guys on the same job with the same skills. One of them will go bankrupt and one of them will make a lot of money, right? And it's work ethic. It's attitude. It's the way that we interpret our surroundings. And it's, it comes down to as simple of an analogy that we've all heard is the glass half full or half empty. How does that apply to roofing though? Well, you know, and, and I saw this countless times, and I'm talking hundreds of times with people that I hired, we would have three crews on, on one very large project with, let's say, 20 duplexes that are all the exact same construction, mm -hmm. right? So your project might be, you're going to put a new roof on all these things. Yeah. You're going to fix up the roof on all these things. Yeah. Yeah. A bunch of construction work on 20 identical buildings. You'll have two crews out there. I'll have two crews. One of them will make a killing and the other one will complain and 
lose staff and, you know, not have any money at the end of the day. And when you look at what they're doing, one of them is working really hard. One of them is complaining, right? One of them is focused on getting the work done. The other one is focused on how they're going to maneuver the next conversation to squeeze an extra couple bucks out of me. So what are you doing at this time? Are you at the F-150 drinking some coffee or? (laughs) Well, the first uh, several years was on average, probably 60 hours a work week. And you swinging a hammer? I did initially. From 2006 until 2009, I swung the hammer myself and had the occasional employee here and there. In 2009, I switched my mindset and went into more of a directly to the public approach. And to clarify, what I mean is for the first few years, I was more of a subcontractor working for other companies. And, you know, I had my own business, but I was building up not really my own name, right? I was, you know, and so in 2009, I decided that I would go directly to the public and, you know, build my own name separate from these other companies. So in 2009, I went from around 130 or 140,000 of revenue to 500. Now, of course, my expenses increased as well, but um, that's when I really started to hire people. Momentum just, it just started coming so fast that I had to put the tools down and, you know, go through what I call business puberty, right? And, and I feel like business puberty happens when a company hits five employees, when it hits 10, when it hits 20, when it hits 40, when it hits 80, and it's kind of a compounding number. And, you know, like, like the space between say 10 and 20 employees is very similar, but the company at 10 and the company at 20 are very different companies. You know, there's, there's usually one or two managers that, you know, sprung up with a new overhead, you know, implication with different KPIs and accountability factors. By 2010, I needed to go through business puberty or fall apart. 2010 was 500. 11 was about 1.1 million. Then it was 2.3. Then it was 3 point something. And then I forget, there was a little span there and we ended up at five and a half and then six and a half. So by 2014, the Growth 500 list in Canada had given us the recognition as number one fastest growing company based on a five-year track record for Calgary, which had also been the equivalent of number 20 for Canada at that particular time. So about seven years in. Yeah. I'm yeah. just going to earmark that because I have a lot of theories. One of them is I have a three-year theory, but I also have a seven-year theory. So basically the three-year theory is like when you start making legitimate money, Yep. And then the seven-year theory is like wealth money. That's exactly how it happened, right? 2006 to nine was cool money. Now you're like living okay, yeah. like, like as if you had like a, you were a lawyer or whatever. Yeah. And then seven years is typically where if like people hang in the business and they keep working at it, it's like, that's when something interesting stuff happens. And to support your theory, it was pretty much exactly at the three and the seven-year mark when this happened. So <laughs> interesting. Now, coincidentally, and as every fast growing company knows, cash flow is a bitch sometimes. And, you know, a really fast growing company needs a lot more cash flow. So at the beginning of 2014, I got all these cool awards, these ego boosting awards of, of, you know, growth speed. By the end of 2014, uh, I'd lost all my profits and I was verging on bankruptcy because I hadn't, you know, caught up with the cash flow demands and I had hired some of the wrong people with some of the wrong advice. And the market kind of went down a little bit too at the same time. So you know, I was on the moon in 2014 and fell on my face at the end of 2014. So then you get to rebuild and do it all again, which is exactly what we did. You mentioned that you had had coaching on multiple different occasions. What was the impetus for you to seek advice? It started because I didn't graduate high school and um, I wanted to... So you missed out on the dinosaur lectures. 
not the little high school <laughs> educations, but I can't remember what I learned. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't finish high school. Right. And found this mentor in the multi-level marketing company, the sales organization to bring me in and ended up being terrible at multi-level marketing, but I did great at direct sales and that company had two aspects to it. So that was my first mentor and he really took me in and showed me, you know, how to do professional sales, right? Not the sleazy kind, the real good kind and, and to change your life. So that was my first experience with a mentor. When I did the event production company, I would barter for everything I didn't have. I would give away sponsorships and tickets in exchange for things that helped me build a business. So it was pretty cool that way. It's kind of like printing money. But uh, one of the things I, I traded for was business coaching. So I got a, a business coach at the time and he's still my gr- good friend to this day. And he taught me all sorts of things about business that I had never, ever heard about. You know, we talked about accounting and structure and contracts and predictability and long-term forecasts and all this fundamental stuff that I didn't know. That was twice now that business coaching became important to my state of mind. When I hit this point in 2014, or it was actually 2013, I hired a self-proclaimed professional business consultant and they did help me early on, but man, they were so far over their head they got me in so much trouble and How? I really don't believe a business coach should be a business coach if they're not in business for themselves, either in a big way in the past or presently at the same time that they're coaching. And this is just my own perspective. So some people might not like me for saying that, but that's how I believe, you know, you can't be a coach in business if you're not in business. So I hired this person who had a big corporate job and who, you know, self-proclaimed called themselves a professional business consultant. And I didn't know any better at the time. So, you know, they, they brought in a bunch of systems, but most importantly, they brought in a lot of confidence that I didn't have. And that confidence, you know, sold me on them, right? If they have that much confidence about what my company needs to do, then maybe they're right, right? And so I started leaning away from my own gut feeling and I started letting go of the reins. And that was a slippery slope. Ultimately, with that advice from this consultant, I ended up hiring other people to the organization who were really not on the same page as me. I think they were probably decent people, but really not on the same page as me from a business perspective. They treated the business differently. They treated the cash flow differently. And uh, by end of 2014, they burned through it all, right? The cash was gone. And, you know, I had come from a spot where I was picking up, you know, people's leftover remains and, and vomit on a couch in a, in a janitorial position. So I understood what it meant to start from nothing. Yeah. They didn't have that, right? And they didn't treat my company in that perspective. So by the end of 2014, you know, we were in big trouble. Cash was gone. There was a, a morale divider. There was the new people and then there was us. And the consultant decided to just, you know, turn around and hightail out of there to save their own reputation. So they completely left me high and dry. It was a terrible experience and uh, shame on them. Um, But you know what? Everything happens for a reason. And I I did learn some really valuable skills. I started, you know, flying around with chopping and slashing at at overhead, like Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai, right? And and cut out 35% of overhead, you know, general manager, key account salesperson, office manager. My accountant at the time that they had hired lost heart, stole about 30 something grand out of my bank accounts. Uh, I caught them in it and had to, you know, take legal action, right? Like this was, this was a, like an explosion, like an atomic bomb happened in in my organization and I had nothing left. So I ended up finding a real business coach one who actually knew what to do. And uh, they really helped me get back on track really and, fast. And how do you know the real from the not real? I think you kind of got to go through the not real first. You know, I don't know that there's really a, an easy way to figure it out. I feel like, you know, how do we know when we've hired the right employee, right? How do we know for sure 
when that employee is going to be a superstar. It's when they become a superstar, right? Yeah. And we don't know when we're hiring. We can, we can filter and do questionnaires and read books and, you know, trust our gut and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, for me anyways, I've definitely had people I hired who I thought were going to flop and ended up being quite good. And other people that I brought in who I thought for sure were going to be a superstar and they ended up being corrosive. The more of them that I go through, the better I get at, you know, picking up the weird, subtle little indicators that lean one way or another. But yeah. it's a trial and error thing. And and I feel like, you know, when we're hiring a lawyer, you know, that big, scary word, when we're hiring a lawyer or, or a, a $600 an hour accountant or we're hiring a business coach, all we're doing is hiring more employees, right? These are just expensive specialists that are part of your team following your leadership and your direction. There's no responsibility on a lawyer or an accountant's or a business coach's shoulders above and beyond the advice that they give, right? It's your company. You have to take ownership for it. You can't, you know, abdicate any responsibility. And so when hiring a business coach or a lawyer or an accountant, to me, I feel like people need to just get over themselves, stop being so intimidated and treat them like a high paid employee, right? Would you hire this person as an employee, right? Because you're in charge of your company. They're under you, right? You're not under them, your lawyer doesn't tell you what to do. You tell your lawyer what to do, right? Hey, Mr. Lawyer, this is what I need you to do. Here's the budget you have for it. If you can't do this, you're fired. And I didn't have the guts until I hired two bad lawyers and they screwed me over, right? Yeah. And it's just trial and error. That's great advice. I love that. So why sell this business, Eric? You know, I thought about it for years. When I first got into it, I was making a lot more money than I ever had before. But the more I was in business and encircled myself with other successful business owners, the more I realized just for me anyways, how low, relatively speaking, the profit was to the risk. And when we're talking, you know, people being up on a four story roof or 10 stories or whatever it is, for me, my team is my family, right? These are a lot of these guys are my close personal friends that I keep in regular contact with. They're risking their lives at the end of the day. If you look at the statistics of how many roofers die every year, right? It'll make you think twice about getting in that business or getting up on a roof yourself. And that was a daily reality. The bigger the company, the more people, the higher the risk. Why did that weigh on you though? Yeah, oh, they're my friends, you know, it's, it's I know, but, oh. but you've been roofing for so long. You've been running this company for over eight years. There must've been like a convergence of, of factors. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of things, you know, one was the risk, you know, physical injury to my friends. Another one was the financial risk, you know, jumping into half million dollar contracts when the company was, is profiting less than half a million in a year, right? That's a, that's a big risk all of a sudden. Boom time in construction means that a lot of other contractors, they do go out of business. And if you're in the wrong spot, you know, you can go down with them, even though you did great work. Yeah. So that wasn't very cool. And it was pretty stressful. Uh, one of the things that, that happened was I looked at the, the people in my industry who had been in it the longest, and I started to see a collective pattern that a lot of times they just didn't really seem like happy people. You know, there was a lot of stresses in the owners of these construction companies. And if the overwhelming average of people that have been in your business the longest don't look like happy people, you know, maybe the odds are against you. I had a good run right? I almost went bankrupt more than once. I almost had burnouts more than once. And by 2018 or 17, I should say, I had a stable income with a nearly automated business with good people with good work and long-term forecasts. And I thought, you know what? This is probably the time on the emotional you know, investment scale. This is probably the time to uh, you know, cash out. 
I'm pulling together a few theories just talking to you. Like on the one we had, we got the three-year theory and the seven-year theory. So like good money and then wealth money. And then you mentioned something, which is like this stuff isn't rocket science. If you're of average intelligence, all you got to do is do good work, show up, do what everybody else is doing, and you're going to have similar results. And then the final piece is something on the show we call the corner office test. We used to say, like, if you have a job right now, like, look down at the end of the call. Mm. Whoever's in that corner office, like, that's where you're going. Like, yep. there's not a lot of, like, deviations. There's not doors on the hallway. Like, that's, you're going that direction. And if you put all those pieces together, you start to see something that's a little bit more legible and cohesive about what a career in entrepreneurship can look like. Like, hey, come to an internet business conference mm-hmm. and talk to all the people that have owned the same business for 10 years. Yep. You think you're going to be different? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, well, you, you probably not. Law of averages, yeah. Yeah. So there was a bunch of factors. And the strongest thing that put me over the edge was just a gut feel. You know, it was just this intuitive vibe. You know, as, really? as, as passionate as I felt, as much as I wanted to get in the industry when I first started, I just kept waking up and I wanted to get out. It's a scary thing because that was my identity. It was my income. It was my launching platform wasn't there party though that was like i could get a bunch of money and party on yeah and you know and and i tried to do the digital nomad thing a little bit when i had the company i worked while i traveled through italy and you know i I did some motorcycle trips to mexico and and i did a bunch of things but you know it just didn't feel right anymore and and that might sound a little woo woo or airy fairy but no it didn't feel right you know it was i felt this overwhelming urge to get out that was as powerful as it was to get in. Who'd you call? To sell? Yeah. Using the theory that we talked about earlier, I interviewed uh, a lot of different business brokers and um, you know, really quickly dismissed many of them. And ultimately, I found one guy who I felt really cared about my company and was ready to take it on. And I, and I, put, I put him on the spot. Right? I said, listen, I'm going to sell this company very fast. If you sell it before me, you get the commission. You know, this was after a few conversations, right? But does he want, of course he wants, brokers get what, 10% of, of anything they sell. I said, listen, I'll give you exclusivity. You can, you can be the only broker that's going to sell this company. Your only competition is me. <laughs> <laughs> you got the skills. I don't have it. Do you think it's relatively easy to sell a contracting business? No. Why is that? How many exits have we heard about contracting companies, particularly the smaller ones, Right. Why did you sell your business in three months then? You know, ultimately, I, I, I don't know, but I have some theories and I would speculate that for one, it's attractive to see that a contracting company can be run with, you know, 15 hours of the owner's input. That's very, very rare. That just right. doesn't happen. Second is I had invested into technology to help automate the company. That's one of the reasons our profits were a little bit lower was I spent, I don't know, 150 grand plus, plus, plus on a bunch of in-house software. You know, we created it from scratch, which, which led me down to loving software and, and my first, you know, dabbling in the tech industry. I patented an invention, a safety guardrail that was truly unique. Um, it was the first of its kind that did what it did. It allowed a roofer to be on the roof for the duration of the shingling removal, as well as the installation while the guardrail is in place. And if you look really closely, essentially every single other competing patent you need to take the guardrail off at some point in that. Why don't you just process. sell those guardrails? You know, I wanted to, and I thought that would be a great idea. 
I don't really think there's a market for it, you know, <laughs> for real, you know, like Ro most inventions, right? <laughs> yeah. Roofers have been doing roofing the way that they do roofing for a very long time. Yeah. Right. And if they're still writing quotes on the back of a napkin, how excited do you think they're going to be to spend money? Right? Yeah. So, yeah. and again, that's one of the reasons I got out of the industry, right? Yeah. There was a time when I thought, man, this invention is going to change the industry. And ultimately I did make, I don't know, a hundred and something grand off of it, which was cool. But that's not life-changing money, and it's not industry-changing either. It is something cool as a pitch to be able to sell the company with a patented invention, though. Yeah. So when it came to selling the company fast, all right, we're kind of automated. We're stable income with stable employees with a niche market, a strong reputation, a patented invention. And I'm willing to not ask for the world in terms of a, a sale price. Can we approximate the amount of money that you got by talking about like revenue and EBITDA. I don't want to say the number, but could you give the audience a sense for where, you, what this might feel like or where you're at? You know what I mean? Yeah. Whatever you're comfortable with. Basically it was more than a million mm -hmm. and it was less than two. That's a really simple way to look at it. It was a EBITDA multiplier of four is the number I chose. So earnings before tax and interest and accrual. That's it. It's just a fancy way to say net profit plus some caveats. Yeah multiplied by four in your case. Yeah. Now, another way to look at it for smaller businesses, because that's a technical analysis that often doesn't really apply when a company is a little bit too small, because often the owner's income is blended and merged with, you know, their car payment. Yeah. And I looked at it in a few different ways was two times discretional earnings. So we take all company profit and owner's income and multiply right. it. Uh, what do we get? And for me, two times discretional earnings was roughly about four times EBITDA. What does it feel like to get paid like that? It's pretty exciting. There's this excitement that builds up for a lot of business owners over many, many years about what the future might look like. Oh, let's go make a trillion dollars, right? And selling a company is one of those experiences, I should say, that a lot of business owners don't make it to. It's exciting to see that someone wants it that it is sellable and that it actually happens. That's really exciting. And of course, you know, there's the flood of emotions that come with it. It was also filled with anxiety. I felt, you know, terrible leaving my friends with a new owner and not really having control anymore. Some of the sale is tied into how the company does to a degree. And, you know, I just gave up control. So it's like, well, geez, was that a good idea or was that not a good idea? And there's a lot of different selling strategies. You know, if some people are really lucky to get just a hard, simplified, hey, here's a bunch of cash exactly on this day. For a lot of people, it's like a real estate deal. You buy a house, you make the purchase, sign the papers, it's done. But a lot of companies, you know, there's the owners that stay on a little bit longer and there's a, a payment plan and all that stuff. And, and all of a sudden I found myself, you know, having to deal with someone that I didn't really know very well. It was cool to sell a company in three months, but I should have taken longer. I should have slowed down that process and fine-tuned it a little bit more, but I got excited. Because now you're business partners until you kind get of. your earn out. Yeah, we're, and, and we're definitely- It's not an earn out, rather, but right. your payments. Yeah, and, and we're not partners at all, but we might as well be. When you're tied at the hip with someone financially to a, a larger extent, you know, it might as well be just sharing a bank account with uh, your spouse. Do you think you could have made the deal happen if you would have had like some kind of collateralization in the company or a lien or something like that, where you would have a legal right to go in and seize company assets if you didn't get paid on a schedule? Absolutely. And two of my weakest points in business at the time that I sold were 
accounting and and legals. And even though I wasn't bad at them, they were my the areas of business that I had the least experience. Going through the sale and everything that's happened after has brought both of those skill sets to new heights. I'd almost call them my strengths now. And yeah, I could have tightened up the contract. I could have done a, a different style of audit. I could have done a lot more research and asked for more of their financial data. And there's a lot of things that... Like you didn't see a personal financial statement of, of your buyer, for no, example. No, I, I just dove in. There's this, you know, when, when you sell a company in three months, you go fast. And I just got excited and probably skipped a lot of the steps that I probably, you know, should have taken more time on. It's the same, you know, sort of mentality I had when I drove across the country with maxed out credit cards in the middle of winter to start the company in the first place, right? right. Just, I got excited. And, and I think that's a really good thing. And, and I think that it's important to latch onto that excitement. And, you know, it's, you know, mom is right sometimes, you know, slow down and, and take your time, right? You know, one of the things, it's just generally, I'd like to put that out there that I think, I wish I would have explored this more. I wish I would have kept a piece of the pie somehow. I mm-hmm. wish I would have kept a toe dug in, whether it's legal, whether it's financing, financial. I had this morbid fantasy because we had an earn out or a payout as well. There was part of me that wished she couldn't make the payments mm. and she would come back to me and say, Hey, do you want to come back in as a more significant financial partner? Mm-hmm. You know, at least in the moment we're talking right now at the end of 2019, it's a seller's market for stuff like this. It's an enormous asset. It's an enormous opportunity for the buyer. Mm-hmm. It's a life-changing thing for them. Maybe they'll allow it, you know, for you to stick on as some kind of minority yeah. partner. So why are we sitting here in Chiang Mai, Thailand together? Why are you here? This is just dreams coming true, right? When I was a little kid, I, I loved Ghost Rider comic books and wanted to get a motorcycle. So I, I bought one and drove to Tijuana from Calgary just by myself, right? When I was watching Kickboxer and Jean-Claude Van Damme go after Tung Po, right? In, in, the, in that Muay Thai movie, I wanted to go to Thailand and watch a Muay Thai fight and then go drink whiskey with the fighters after, right? So I literally came to Thailand to watch Muay Thai and buy the fighters some drinks after, which is what I did. <laughs> Can you describe Muay Thai to the people who don't know what it is? It's raw, rugged street fighting without kicks in the balls or bites. That's pretty much it. <laughs> but other than that, you know, Muay Thai is a culture. It is a respected, it's a martial art. It's a respected thing. It's a profession. And now it's become an industry. It seems, I mean, I don't know much about it, but it seems like enormously positive because now all of a sudden Thailand's got this huge cultural export because of the rise of UFC and stuff. You have all these people from the West that are coming here to train, to learn about this, this art. What are you planning on doing next? Because a lot of times when people sell, they sort of have startup anxiety and I'll just float this idea by you. Remember that feeling you had when you were in the van? Stepdad bought you the snow tires, all this stuff. You were a freaking crazy person. No offense, but you were a maniac. Yeah, pretty much. Right now, you seem pretty well adjusted. (laughs) You got money. You can pursue your dreams. (laughs) Does it take a maniac to start a business? No. There's all sorts of people. There's... You know, crazy people, there's smart people, there's people that just have a way of figuring things out. Some people that are just in the right spot at the right time, right? And everyone's got their own path. There is one thing that's consistent though in my mind, and that's choice. To me, you know, circumstance can be a damned thing, but choice, in my opinion, is more powerful. And it compounds. And if anyone listening here wants to start a business or wants to fix their business or wants to make it better or bigger, right, then 
the more I suggest that you focus on that desire, slowly, slowly, things will start to happen, right? And it's tough. For me anyways, I'll just speak for myself. I had to make that choice over and over, you know, countless times, infinity amount of times to keep going, to find a solution. It's a marathon and it's not a marathon with a finish line. Even after the sale, it's not done. It's a way of life, right? Entrepreneurship and being a business to me is a way of life. And everyone has the ability to get there and choice is, you know, one of the the biggest factors of it. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Big thanks to Eric Gilbert Williams. As he mentioned, he's writing a book about his experiences. So I wanted to give a shout to that. You know, as we were chatting, he mentioned he loves to connect with listeners and readers who just want to exchange ideas. So I always encourage you, don't hesitate to reach out to the guests that you hear on this show. If you feel a particular connection to them, you can get in touch with Eric over at ericgilbertwilliams.com. That's E-R-I-C Gilbert Williams. So the links to that and everything that we mentioned in today's show, of course, will be located over in the show notes at tropicalmba.com. So hope you enjoyed this one. We're always looking for interesting, unique entrepreneurial stories. If you've got one, don't hesitate to reach out to us. And we will be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.